Hello everyone, and welcome to Go Forth, a music education talk show. I'm Summer. And this is Owen. This week features Dr. Rollo Dilworth speaking about cultural appropriation and culturally responsive teaching. Eric and Owen will then go into a segment about effectively practicing, and Erica and Jenny will speak about how to be inclusive in the classroom. We hope you enjoy! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Go Forth, the music education show based at the Sutterman Conservatory of Music at Gettysburg College. My name is Logan Shippey, and I am proud and honored to present Dr. Rollo Dilworth uh, to our show today. Hello, Dr. Dilworth. How are you? Hello, Logan. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. Of course. Many of our listeners who are listening to this show know who you are already. But for those who don't, I'm going to ask you a simple question. What do you do? That's, a, that's actually quite a good question, Logan. I appreciate it. So my current job, I teach at Temple University. I serve as professor of choral music education, where I'm fortunate enough to teach both in the choral department and the music education department. And I also have an administrative role where I serve as vice dean for the Center for the Performing and Cinematic Arts. That's a long title that what that basically means is that I have the opportunity to provide some oversight and guidance for our music program, our dance program, our theater program, and our film and media arts program. Outstanding. Uh, a simple question. I was being a little disingenuous, but someone who is involved in as many things as you may be a little bit more complicated to answer. <laughs> now, I want to I wanna get to know you a little bit more, and I want to ask, when did you start making music? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to, to remember for sure. I know that I started enjoying music as early as the age of five. Uh, I went to a little elementary school where we sang all the time, all day. I learned my numbers, my parts of speech, how to be a, a good citizen, all through, all through singing. So I've been engaged in music ever since I can remember. I started taking formal piano lessons when I was nine. I started singing formally in the children's choir when I was seven. And I, I haven't really looked back since. It's been an amazing journey and I've been fortunate to have great teachers along the way who've encouraged me and who've tried to steer me uh, in a direction that would help me to do what I'm doing today, which is teaching and conducting and composing. Yeah, speaking on conducting and arranging and composing, I believe that you started arranging rather early in your career. Could you talk about how you started arranging and composing? Yeah, sure. I, I started arranging and composing pretty much out of curiosity as a little kid. I was a little boy in the children's choir at my school and also at my church. They were I went to Catholic school, so they were kind of one and the same thing many of the times. And I would bring the music home from rehearsal and sit at the piano and I would start, you know, tinkering away, playing my part. And I would start playing other people's parts. I would start playing the accompaniment. And out of sheer curiosity, Logan, I would start changing the pitches, changing the rhythms, sometimes changing the text mm. and re rewriting the score, sort of arranging, if you will. That was my first, my, my entry point into the arranging process. And I was just a little bit of a geek of a kid. You know, I would write something out different, a different idea out on, on my manuscript paper and I would take it back to rehearsal to the music teacher and I would hold up the manuscript to her and I would say, can we try it this way? And there were times in which he actually gave me a shot at doing that. 
and really encouraged me. And I wasn't completely sure of what I was doing, but I knew that I was curious. And I think it was my curiosity that led me to more in-depth study as I got older about music theory, of course, and the arranging process and the composing process. And I continue to do it to this day, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of just pure fun. Yeah, that really speaks to the importance of teachers early in our life. Like imagine an alternate history where your teacher did not encourage you and allow you those opportunities. So when you started arranging and conducting, did you have any inspiration, uh, other composers, arrangers that you listened to? There were quite a few people that I was listening to. I was certainly watching what uh, a lot of the local groups in my town were doing, the local collegiate choirs and high school choirs and community choirs. In particular, I was fascinated by a gentleman named Robert Ray, who is famous for writing a piece called The Gospel Mass that has served as a blueprint for a lot of other arrangers and composers who, who have come after him. And so I got a chance to study with him because he, he was local in, in St. Louis. So he certainly was one of my early influences. I was listening to classical music growing up. I was listening to pop music, rhythm and blues music. I was listening to jazz music. I was listening to country music. So I was, I was really just listening to all kinds of music and found myself being influenced by a lot of different styles along the way. So you've talked about your path as coming up as a composer and arranger. Do you have any advice on younger people who want to get into that field? Sure. I think that it's really important as you grow and develop as a composer to study music theory. I think that is extremely important. Even if you have a, you know, sort of instincts that sort of move you through the compositional process, it's important for you to know what it is you're writing. I think it's very critical that if you're going to be a, a composer that you play piano, get those chops going, because that will that skill alone will allow you to put multiple voices together and hear what those those sonorities are like when they come together. I think it's important to study music history from a compositional through a compositional lens have a knowledge of what was going on in every single style period and who the prominent composers were and what is it about their particular style or their of writing or their particular compositional technique that made people enjoy their music and respect their music. And through that study and through understanding what these composers did before, you know, we came uh, into being, will greatly inform and have an impact on us as we develop our own particular voice as, as composers and as arrangers. That's all great advice. And I should start working on the piano right now. Uh, <laughs> Go to it, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna switch uh, slightly topic uh, to something that I believe would concern a lot of music educators going out into the field. Um, when it comes to arranging and composing and performing practices, which is cultural appropriation. It seems like there are some blurred lines between what is acceptable and objectionable in terms of cultural appropriation. And I was wondering if you had any perspectives that could help guide young teachers in navigating those blurred lines. Yeah, thank you, Logan, for that question. Certainly cultural appropriation has been a hot topic for quite a bit of time. And particularly in music education, uh, we are, are being faced with 
all sorts of opportunities to have these kinds of discussions. I'll refer you to a book by James Young, James O. Young, called Cultural Appropriation and the Arts. It's a very good book, and it, it helps us to look very carefully at the different kinds of cultural appropriation that exist out there. But the upshot of it is James Young, and also Richard Rogers, not of the, the musical theater fame, but Richard Rogers is another scholar out there on cultural appropriation. And both of them tend to agree that cultural appropriation is ubiquitous. It is everywhere and it happens all the time. And I think that many people assume that once you use the word cultural appropriation, that it is suddenly a bad thing and that, you know, someone should pay the price for committing an act of cultural appropriation. The fact of the matter is that cultural appropriation can, can occur in a very respectful manner that we sometimes dub cultural appreciation. And cultural appropriation can occur in a very profoundly offensive manner. And that could be what James Young considers cultural appropriation as theft or cultural appropriation as offense. What I will say sort of in short to, to music educators out there is that if you want to avoid or mitigate the, the possibility of an act of cultural appropriation being offensive, you must do your homework. You must do everything you can to understand the history, the culture, the performance practice, the background of any music that you, you choose to study, particularly music that represents cultures outside of your normal level of understanding or outside of your everyday interactions. I think that it is critical to ensure that the same amount of study that you would give to, let's say, Bach and to Haydn and to Handel, you must do that with a piece of, we will say, a piece of cultural music, even though all music is cultural, but a piece of cultural music or a piece of music that represents a culture beyond the Western European culture. I think that cultural appropriation, offensive cultural appropriation happens when an ensemble, we'll, be, we'll talk about music education, when an ensemble demonstrates a lack of understanding and respect for a cultural tradition. And it will show up. It will show up in the way the words are pronounced. It will show up in the way the choir moves or doesn't move. It will show up in the way the, the director conducts the choir or ensemble. It will show up. And I think that cultural appropriation is something that happens all the time. And we should not be afraid of it, but we must make sure that when we endeavor to take on a set of behaviors that are specific to a culture other than our own, that, that is cultural appropriation. When we endeavor to do so, we must do so with respect. If necessary, we must do so with permission. And we must do so uh, in a way that allows us to be vulnerable and for us as the educators to be the learners and not present ourselves as being the experts. So that, that's a little bit of advice for music educators. And not to be afraid of it. Do not use the idea or the, the notion of cultural appropriation as an excuse for not endeavoring to, to perform or study a certain kind of music. Oh, I'm not going to do that because my choir 
they will, my choir members will accuse me or my audience will accuse me of, culture, of, of committing cultural appropriation. I think it's the music educator's job to educate the singers on what cultural appropriation is and is not. And it's their job to educate their audiences and other stakeholders on what cultural appropriation is and is not. And I assure you, everything will be okay because we all culturally appropriate. We all do it. Think about earrings. How many people wear earrings? Lots of people. Well, you know, earrings actually have their, their origins in North Africa, Egypt, or and, and parts of Persia, what used to be Persia, South Asia. And earrings originated with those cultures. So anybody who's not Persian or Egyptian is, is committing cultural appropriation. Are they doing it to offend people? Of course not. It's just a part of, of what we do now because it's a part of our culture. And so... So the question should not be, is something culturally, are we committing an act of cultural appropriation or not? Because more often you are than not. The question should be, is the act of cultural appropriation acceptable or offensive? Thank you so much for that excellent answer. Oh my gosh. Personal experience, I've definitely felt fear of cultural appropriation just because of the stigma that word has. And I'm so glad that you touched on that it's not necessarily like the devil incarnate is 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 possessing you <laughs> when mm -hmm. it's happening. Right. Yeah. It's about intention. Yeah. It's about intention. Mm -hmm. And if the intention is just to check a box and say, oh, it's Black History Month, we're going to do this spiritual, then that's offensive. But if, there is a, if it, there's a solid commitment to programming music of diverse composers for the experience of your students learning historical and cultural concepts as it relates to the music, and you want your students to have a better understanding of not only who they are, but who other people are that don't look like them, and give them an opportunity to engage difference, and give them an opportunity to really more deeply explore the traditions surrounding that music, then that's, that's not cultural appropriation. That's doing your job as a music educator. That's doing your homework. That's right. <laughs> you got it. You got it. So thank you so much. I'm going to finish up the interview with a simple question that might have a complicated answer, just okay. like I started. What are you working on going forward? That's a very good question. For many years of my career, I have I've dedicated the bulk of my co compositional and arranging output to music that points us toward principles of social justice and social change. All African-American spirituals fall into that category. Some gospel pieces fall in that category, but many of the pieces that I've been working on over the last several years focus on the writings of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes. And so that's what I continue to do. I just finished setting a Maya Angelou piece and 
I'm moving on to some more contemporary uh, poets that are out there. And I've got some commissions that connect with, with those works. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And I'm spending quite a bit of time these days on the, the lecture circuit, since I can't get on an airplane and travel anywhere, and talking to choral organizations in particular, but sometimes talking to music schools and talking to other arts organizations about social justice and social change and the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how those principles can and perhaps should be alive and well in our strategic planning, in our institutional identities, and in ultimately in the artistic endeavors that, that we choose for performance and, and for study. So that's, that's what I'm up to these days, and I'm enjoying it. Well, that's very exciting, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. Thank you so much for coming and indulging me. Oh. <laughs> And Dr. Talbot, I suppose, he's pointing to him. So. Uh, well, well, thanks to both of you. It's, it's, a, it's been a pleasure. I thought it was really interesting how Dr. Dilworth grew up arranging and like noodling around with his choir parts. Next up, we have Eric and myself talking about playing in wind symphony during COVID. Hi, this is Owen. Hey, this is Eric. And today we are talking about the teaching and pedagogical part of Go Forth, the music education talk show. Go Forth. How are you, Eric? Oh, I'm doing okay. You know, we're still, still here on campus. It's good to be here, good to be around people. How you doing? You know, pretty good. Really busy, but I'm I'm loving life, which Bu is a good thing. Yeah, busy indeed. It, our program does a really nice job at keeping us busy, which is a blessing and a curse, of course. Yes, um, of course. So, what are we talking about today? Huh. Today, we are talking about practicing for especially the wind symphony this semester hmm. and how it's changed since COVID-19. A lot has changed. And I want to let you explain some of this. Yeah, so the Wind Symphony led by uh, Dr. Russell McCutcheon and the Symphony Orchestra led by Cesar Leal. Um, and then, of course, the Concert Choir, College Choir, etc., cetera, uh, led by Dr. Natter, were all meeting in person uh, in, like, groups of eight or nine, um, socially distanced and, and really trying to make music the best that we can uh, with really, really large works. Um, so, for example... Uh, this past week in the Wind Symphony, uh, eight or nine musicians at a time for like for like one hour, we came together and we prepared um, uh, Persichetti's uh, Divertimento. Um, and the goal of the semester is not a performance, right? No, it is it's not. Like, uh, it's like it's it's a educational outcome, teaching you know teaching us to uh, perform professionally, you know prepare not perform prepare professionally. Um, our parts and our practice, you know, our practice times uh, prior to actually showing up to the rehearsal. Um, and I think it's pretty interesting. Do you have any opening opinions on how it's been going? Yeah, so to start off, I think this semester, it really shines a light on how much work it takes to be a professional musician mm. and how to just walk in. I mean, we are not, we're not walking into rehearsals sight reading, but how professionals can walk into a rehearsal and just rehearse it once before the performance and yeah. just knock it out, like out of the park. And I think it's really amazing how connected they are to the music to understand it so well before even playing it with other people. So I think in this this weekend Wind Symphony, it was really interesting to since we don't have all the parts, there's only ten people. We have like two percussionists. My group had two clarinets, a French horn. Um, I play euphonium, so I switch in between euphonium and the tuba part, and we had a trombone. And with a combination of weird instrument or 
weird instrumentation. Different instrumentation. And um, with bell covers, it changes some of the pitches on some of the instruments, especially <laughs> trombone. It makes it hard to not only play together as a whole ensemble, but you have to really be able to listen to the music beforehand and mm. know when you're coming in and what part plays where so that you can try to play it musically without the whole setting there with you. Yeah, it's like it's a lot of listening to tracks beforehand, of course, and then once you actually get into the rehearsal, it's a lot of listening to what isn't there. Um, and we're taught often to audiate, of course. Um, you know, listen for parts that aren't there, um, just so you know you know how you, you know how it sounds before you come in, um, and while you're playing, really listening to what isn't there, um, so that everybody stays together in a cohesive ensemble. It's pretty it's pretty neat, um, and then of course after each group has their rehearsal session, um, we come together and we do a little bit of a wrap up, uh, and we talk about the the ways that we did some research and and the articles that we read, um, and the extended listening that we did. Um, which is which is pretty cool, um, and I really appreciate it. I think it's uh, definitely an interesting pedagogical, uh, you know, platform that we're kind of developing here as we you know as we go through the the semester. Um, so, switching gears to the preparation part of it, you know, we're we're thinking about practicing and we're thinking about how to actually prepare for these things. So, you know, what are some of the ways that you've prepared for these rehearsals? I know we touched on reading and listening, but um, actually picking up your euphonium and, and, and doing the thing. Yeah, so I think my process, I'll just go through it real quick. Mm. So I think I start off with with listening to the piece, and so far I've played both the pieces, um, the second suite in F by Gustav Holtz and Divertimento by Persichetti. Mm. I played both those pieces before, so um, listening wasn't really required for me, but I did it anyways just because I love <laughs> those pieces. Yeah. They're great. But um, just refreshing my brain, listening and playing my part back to like a track or um, specifically what we're doing right now is we're doing um, practice videos for yeah. Dr. McCutcheon. And I think those are great because if you combine what Dr. Layout talked about in one of our meetings, he talked about making sure that whenever you're practicing, you're focusing in on the things that you don't know how to play or that are challenging for you. Yeah. So that you're not I wouldn't want to say wasting time playing the things that you do know because it's important just to like refresh your brain and make sure that it's still in your well think my fingers it's for under, me right least. in your chops under your but fingers practicing the things you don't know so that when it comes time to perform it with a group which is pretty much what we're doing we're not really practicing with a group it's more just we get to the um majestic or follow the hall and uh -huh. we just play it together as a group yeah you got to show up and lay it down yeah um so the practice videos are very helpful because it makes you they want to hear you practice something challenging. They don't want to hear you just succeed immediately. It's just a very short, like two minute, two and a half minute video of you explaining what part you're going to play. Uh, maybe just a four measure section, maybe eight measures. And it could be something like having great tone, making sure you play the right dynamics or articulations. Um, an example for me was playing the tuba part in the, I think it's the fourth movement of the Persichetti. And that was difficult for me because I'm not used to playing a D below the staff on a euphonium. Is that I'm the uh, to... that's the solo, right? Yes. That's cool. It's a great part. <laughs> um, but I'm not used to playing that low, and it requires more air to blow through instrument, and it requires a lot of air to play higher on the euphonium. But that's yeah. Faster air, playing lower is 
like slower air and still you're blowing a lot of air through the instrument. Yeah. So for me, my practice video was focused on making sure I had a full resonant sound while playing lower in parts that I don't usually play on my instrument. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's like um, the uh, Dr. McCutcheon tells us to play the cues that we have. So so doing our best to fill in the parts for the instruments that aren't there. Um, so that's pretty neat. You were actually able to like work on practicing for a part that isn't on your instrument. I like yeah. that. Um, that's cool. Yeah, and it's it's uh, for me it gives me an opportunity to break from my normal practice routine. I, I like to I like to go into the practice room and do a little bit of interleaved and spaced out practicing um, where I have maybe six or seven six or seven tasks. Um, you know, or, or trouble spots that I like, you know, I like to call them trouble spots. Mm -hmm. Six or seven of those, and I go in for my hour or my hour and a half, and I bounce around for like, for like three to five minutes on one thing, three to five minutes on another. Um, and since I'm a percussionist, it's a little bit easier to do that for me because I can move from snare to xylophone to marimba, back to snare to timpani. You know, I can go all around. Um, but these practice videos have been helpful for me to kind of break away from my typical routine um, here lately, which has been uh, grinding out a marimba solo. Um, so I've been able to break from that and, and you know, take 10, 15 minutes away from that, make a video for uh, the Wind Symphony and, and um, kind of manage my practice in a, in a different way that I have before. Um, so it's a, it's a cool opportunity and it's definitely interesting to, to be witnessing at the moment. Um, and yeah, we'll see where it goes throughout the semester. I'm intrigued by, so I work on the band staff, mm. so I copied all the parts. Mm. I know that all the percussionists have all four parts, sometimes for the music, sometimes just three, but uh -huh. I know you guys have like the snare part, the xylophone part, marimba parts, you have everything. So how do you focus, how do you focus your time <laughs> during your practice sessions? Like what, you said that you play a lot of marimba for your solo right now. Right. So do you practice that the least amount when the when somebody part comes out or do you practice your bass drum hits more? Like, yeah. What do you, how do you do this? That's a really good question. Um, so there are so there are four four parts. You'll have percussion one, two, three, and four. Um, on occasion, you know, it, it depends on what piece you're playing, but on occasion you'll have uh, percussion one, which will have snare drum, bass drum, and like maybe hand cymbal or suspended cymbal on it. Um, and then you'll have your percussion, you know, that's just one part. Mm -hmm. It's just one part. Um, and typically you'll have one or two percussionists playing that one part. Um, so one person will have snare, one person will have bass drum. That's just percussion one. Percussion two might have your suspended cymbal, your triangle, your glockenspiel, um, your woodblock, you know, etc. Uh, just layered out between percussion two and three. Percussion four might have some more auxiliary stuff. You might have an entire xylophone or entire marimba part. Um, and then timpani, the timpani part is completely separate from those four. Um, so we're talking about 13 to 15 instruments in percussion, you know, that I've gotten this one big folder. And I'm like, okay, now I have to choose what to do. Uh, and the way I do it is twofold. Number one, uh, I communicate with the other percussionists and I say, hey, what are you playing, right? Because since we only have, you know, we have these different groups, since we only have an hour, um, then I like to say, okay, I'll play these, you know, I'll play snare, I'll play uh, woodblock and movement three, and I'll finish out with xylophone. Um, and then everyone else will say, okay, in that case, then I'll play triangle, glock, and uh, timpani for movement, whatever. Um, so we kind of distribute just so the, the ensemble, or really Dr. McCutcheon, can hear other instruments, you know, interweaved. Um, so that's part, that's, that's fold number one, let's say that. 
Uh, number two is we can't do everything, right? You know, so we have we have to distribute, like I said. Um, so what I do is I pick, you know, after that communication has happened, then I go and I pick and I choose, you know, I scan through um, before I do my site reading or whatever. Um, and I think, okay, that's a spot and that's a spot um, in the xylophone. Great, done. I'll do that for two minutes. Next, okay, here's snare. Mm, those are some, you know, those are some soft roughs. Uh, and I should work on, you know, maybe I'll work on my buzz, maybe I'll work on my roughs at piano. Um, and that's another part, I'll do that for two minutes. Um, so that's that kind of staggering, and that's a way that I can jump around from instrument to instrument. Um, and, it, you know, it works out. That's the percussion life, is you get all these different parts, and you're like, all right, what do I do first? Um, and it's, I wouldn't say it's a struggle, but I would say sometimes it's a handful. <laughs> it's understandable. Yeah. Do you... This is kind of off topic real quick, but mm. what is your favorite percussive, percussive instrument? Oh, uh, like like in terms of timbre, in terms of performance, or, or, or my favorite to play? We'll say your favorite to play. My, right fav my favorite to play, and this is not going to shock many people, is, is rudimental snare drum. Uh, I'm a big marching band guy, so I love just like going nuts with a bunch of different rudiments on the snare. Um, I guess the second answer would be... Uh, and this is because of, of timbral effect, is the marimba. Oh, gosh, I love uh, just a low marimba solo. A low marimba sound is, the, is, is in my opinion, the best pitched percussion uh, instrument in terms of sound. To me, I, I don't know. There are a million different answers to that. But. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, why don't we switch gears a little bit? Um, so we were talking about uh, practicing and, and our practice routine. Um, but let's talk about how COVID-19 has kind of affected our time management um, and our efficiency as music education majors. Uh, I know that this is an interesting topic to both of us as we've talked about before. Um, just the direction that we have to, you know, the, there are a lot of, there's a lot of stigma about the music education major being too hard. Um, and I think you and I both agree that that's just not true, right? Um, we, you know, it's completely doable and it's as challenging and other majors are as challenging as this one. Um, and I think that we should just kind of debunk a little bit of, you know, okay. I think that we should just kind of debunk some of the stigma that's, you know, been talked about and, and related to our major. Um, so let's start by talking about some of the challenges um, and some of the ways around those challenges of our major in terms of like handling our time. So maybe just go through your schedule. Sure. Um, so right now my schedule is pretty booked, especially um, I'm an RA for one of our halls on campus. Mm. And I have these things called G chats where it's like an hour talk with your resident about how they're doing, how their classes are going. A full hour with, with all of your residents? Yep. Wow. So I have 22 of them to do this. No, 21, 21 this semester. That's a full day. Yes, That's a whole day. <laughs> so, um, especially now, and I've realized this over time, is that I love having morning classes because it makes me get out of bed mm. and start my day by doing work and just learning in general. It gets my cogs turning. Yeah. Um, so right now, I have most of my classes I have blocked out from like 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. or 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Yeah. Some of and that, then that I'll have lunch with my friends. Um, I'll probably practice my euphonium or I'm in string methods right now so I'll play cello or violin or one of those instruments and then I go off to uh, euphonium class, euphonium yeah. studio or lesson <laughs> uh, or my English class 
then I'll have dinner. Um, and then usually during dinner, there's sometimes one symphony or mm. I have different um, residential um, meetings to have with my other uh, fellow RAs yeah. on the floor. And then from there at night, I just do a lot of homework because I'm very focused at night. I'm not sure why. I mean, I'm very sleepy from my long day. Yeah. But my work ethic at night is I can't go to bed until I finish everything. It's a, which yeah. is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I, I think I'm that way too. My I work exceptionally better in the evening. It's just like, you know, I get to sit at my desk and, and unwind. And um, even though I'm still using my brain, my body, you know, my body gets to rest from the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, continue. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, I'll just do a lot of homework and then sometimes I have duty at night, which is just walking on the halls, make sure everything's quiet, everyone's mm -hmm. being respectful to each other. Um, and I'll just do homework in between those sessions and then I go to bed around like one or two AM. Do you really? Yeah. That's my, wow. that's my normal time at this point. That's, that's interesting. I like, I, I like to have a hard midnight bedtime, um, which I think is important. It's important to have kids. Bedtimes get better, you know, <laughs> like like everybody uh, when they're younger, you don't like to have a bedtime, but bedtimes are, are critical to succeeding. I miss bedtimes. In life. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I, miss the, I miss the 8 p.m. bedtime sleep for yeah, 12 right. hours. <laughs> Wake up for school. Um, What's your schedule looking like? I can't say that mine's much different. Um, the only thing is that I'm not an RA, um, and I think that, that I think that you talking about time management is is really important because you have all these, like we said, 21 hours at least um, of job dedication uh, outside of the major. I think that that's, well, number one, really impressive. Um, and number two, just something to speak to because, uh, yeah, even though people think that the major is really hard, um, that, you know, there are ways to just be efficient about it and get, get things done. It's so you doable. have So you have times for, you know, time for other stuff. Um, now, in re in regards to COVID nineteen, we as musicians have had to schedule practice rooms. Mm -hmm. We have had to look at our schedules and find and and make reservations through the conservatory um, for the semester. So mm -hmm. we've already like we've already just decided when you know when practicing is going to happen. Um, and don't get me wrong, I am a fan of of the old schedule. Um, Dr. Talbot does a really nice thing where he has all of his advisees make. Um, make Excel sheets with their schedules in it um, and then ha he reviews them before we actually um, start the semester which is very beneficial for many reasons but practicing is a whole other beast right because we've got we as musicians have this certain type of motivation to practice our instrument you know at specific times um, maybe I'm speaking too generally but I guess I'll talk more to only myself I like to, when I'm free, when I have a free hour, that's my favorite time to jump into a practice room. Um, that's when I like to go ahead and, that's when I like to go ahead in and start, uh, you know, start and finish my one or like hour and a half of practice a day. Um, after I have maybe completed class or completed a really good assignment, when I have, you know, good forward motion um, to actually want to, you know, rehearse my instrument. So having a scheduled time every day, the same time every day, um, has been a little bit of a struggle for me. And I'm wondering if, if you have had similar emotion. So especially starting this week with G-Chats, um, mm -hmm. because I pretty much put all the free time that I have down on a piece of paper and said, because my residents also have 
classes, they have things going on that they want to do. Right. So I'm not going to say, come to my room at 10 p.m. at night and talk to me. That's yeah, just yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So I give them my free time during the day, which is my usual practice time. So it's going to challenge me to find time and a good time for me to practice. So um, I usually practice euphonium around 1 or 2 o'clock. It's when, supposedly it's when you're the most tired during the day. Like it's midday. Like between 2 to 5 for some reason. I feel that. I think it's because we're digesting lunch. <laughs> yeah, that's de I'm definitely digesting lunch. But um, for some reason, lunch gives me a kick to work. And mm. um, in the past, I've had struggle, like struggles to want to practice euphonium. Yeah. But I just ordered a new piece for my jury, yeah. and I'm looking forward to playing that right now. So I'm trying to just make sure I keep my chops up so that whenever I do get the piece, I'm not blowing chunks to yeah, try yeah, to yeah. play the right notes. <laughs> That's um, definitely motivation, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so with regards to that, I also have to practice, um, obviously, the string instruments for string methods. Mm. So. I just requested a practice room from 6 to 7 after Wind Symphony yeah. so that I'm not playing euphonium for an hour and then playing euphonium again for another hour practicing the practice room. Right. So I'm going to take that time to practice string instruments and make my um, teaching segment videos for the Thursday. Mm. So most of my practice time goes in the afternoon and then at night is sometimes where I have to change it around for um, strings. Yeah. So When's your usual practice time? My usual practice time that I have scheduled is 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Um, and that's and that's different from you know that's different from what I had it in the past. I used to like to do like you do during the afternoon, like um, two thirty to three thirty was when I really used to practice my instrument. Um, and I still everyone you know I still sometimes will have an open two thirty to three thirty, um, and I would really love to jump in and go do that, but I you know I can't because I you know I don't have the reservation. Um, so I suppose a solution to that would be, of course, to make the reservation. Um, but the problem is that has to be, you know, 48 hours in advance. Um, and if I, you know, if I, something comes up that day, then I have to email to cancel. Um, so it's just an interesting balance as to, you know, the motivation to practicing in the moment, um, and wanting to just go do it, um, versus the logistics to actually having to, you know, go, you know, go through everything two days in advance, um. And it's different for me because I don't have a marimba in my room. You know, some people some people have the ability to bring their instrument back to their dorm. Um, although I don't know how happy, happy I would be hearing a piccolo across the room for me. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just a little bit of a struggle having to you know having to request a room two days in advance uh, in order to you know spontaneously go practice. Yeah. The funny thing about that is that you said you wouldn't want to hear a piccolo across the room. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, my residents say that they don't mind me practicing my instrument. Really? They actually enjoy listening to it. Oh, um, well, that's somehow, a compliment to you. <laughs> exactly. Somehow they enjoy my violin playing, which I don't understand. <laughs> it's usually it's like, it's pretty bad. That but, is so funny. That is they so said funny. that they enjoy it, and they understand that I'm still in the beginning phase, and I'll get better. Oh, they're, wow, so that's they're, so they're sweet. They're really nice about How it. How nice of them. They're, they're the best people. That's right. And then the second right. question I have for you is, okay. since there's only one percussion room as far as I know, yes. is it hard to schedule a practice time with, I think there's four of you for percussion right now? Is yeah. Is it hard scheduling a right time with all of you having different schedules? There there are there are four of us. Um, there, there are two um, BA percussionists, BA major percussionists, and then there's um, another percussionist in Wind Symphony who does not, who does not have a major or a minor. Um, and then there's me. So there is one practice room uh, 
with a marimba, a xylophone, a vibraphone, snare drum, and timpani. So, so five solid instruments. Um, and that is the, the quote-unquote main percussion practice room. There is another room, um, 106, that has a drum set in it. Um, and on, you know, on the drum set, you can use the snare drum to play snare drum, of course. Um, or if, you know, it's a very tiny room, it's literally a broom closet. Um, and when I say broom closet, I mean it's the same size as every other practice room, which is the size of a broom closet, just to make myself clear. Um, so you could move another instrument into it and create two practice rooms. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, we could somehow deconstruct the marimba and move it into a third, um, if we had to. Mm. There is also, I believe, and I haven't explored this too far because it hasn't been too much of a struggle to get time in the room. Um, I believe there is the opportunity to, pra to practice on the Majestic. Oh. I think that we can R25 that space, um, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. I think there has to be some sort of faculty member involved. Mm -hmm. um, if a student R25s, I think a faculty member has to be there. I don't know. That might be totally incorrect. Um, but I'm not sure. That is an option that I have heard. Um, and if need be, I will certainly be uh, utilizing it. Um, so I guess that is to you know that is to say, j just to, just for us to touch on a couple of uh, for us to touch on a couple of practice routines and fitting in uh, the practicing within our, our schedules um, or Owen's very busy schedule. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I'm glad we had this talk. Yeah, we're good to go. Awesome. So this has been Owen. This has been Eric. And this is Go Forth, the music education talk show. Thanks, Thank everyone. you for listening. Woo! It's really nice to hear about wind symphony and effective practicing. Now we will talk about inclusion in the classroom with Erica and Jenny. Hello. Welcome to segment two of Go Forth, a music education talk show. My name is Erica Messinger. My name is Jenny Jordan. And um, Jenny and I are both first-year students, music education majors, obviously, and we are both enrolled in the Social Foundations of Music Education class. And we talk about so much in that class. It's not, it's too much to cover in one 15 to 20-minute segment, to say the least. But, um, yeah, so we're going to be focusing mainly on how we have been learning to be inclusive in our future classrooms. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of our uh, big books that we've been reading um, this semester has been uh, Compassionate Music Teaching um, by Karen S. Hendricks. And um, one big point that it makes is talking about practicing empathy and practicing patience in the classroom, you know. Um, always being mindful of how students are, like what's going on in their lives, um, just in general, you know. Yeah, um, one big way we've been learning how to practice um, empathy is to um, be aware of what is going on in your students' lives. Now, it's obviously, you're not going to know what's going on in the personal lives of every single student that you have. But it's so, so important that we just be sensitive because you never truly know what's going on behind closed doors. And 
if a student does trust you enough to reveal that information to you, it's your job as their teacher to make accommodations for them in the classroom if need be, and just be a support system for them, a shoulder to lean on. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, growing up, I think a lot of my big support systems were the teachers that I had, especially the music teachers that I had. Um, another big thing we talked about is um, in terms of patience is, you know, or patience and empathy, I'd say, is if you, you know, if you see a student that's struggling to kind of have patience with that student, because Again, you never know what's happening behind closed doors. You know, maybe they can't focus in class because there's something big going at home. Like, maybe there's like a somebody's getting a divorce, something like that. Um, we talked a bit about that in another book that we read a while ago. Um, it's called "To Teach the Journey in Comics," um, written by William Ayers and Ryan Alexander Tanner. Um, that book also talks a lot about. Um, trying to have patience with these students and re recognizing that every student is a human being um, with their own lives, complicated, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was, I remember the one student that um, Bill Ayers talked about in To Teach. Um, he was, I don't think he was necessarily misbehaving in the class, but he was having a lot of trouble focusing and staying on task. And upon doing some more digging, they found out that his brother was recently put into prison. And that's just like, I can't even imagine that happening to me, much less, you know, a student in my classroom having to deal with that, especially a kid as young as this one was. But that just goes to show there's pretty much always going to be some sort of reason if a kid is not as active and engaged in the learning as they normally are. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had those days before and I'm sure that everybody, everybody who has ever been in a classroom has probably had those days before. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, if you are going through a rough time, I'm certain that you would want to have people to have patience with you as well. Um, you know, I, I, I was always a pretty decent student growing up, but like, I mean, there were, there were moments where my grades would drop and people would be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, when I was in fifth grade, that was um, when my parents got divorced. And that was just a really hard time. I had appointments with the school guidance counselor. That did absolutely nothing. <laughs> Um, my grades didn't really slip, but it was just a really hard time emotionally, and I think that still really affected me in school. And um, obviously, I would never wish for somebody's parents to get divorced, but um, I think that experience helped me in the sense that I understand, like, students can go through stuff like that, and it's... It's a lot harder on some kids than it is on others. Like, I was fortunate enough that my parents never, like, fought, really. Um, but a lot of kids, their parents, they go home and their parents are shouting at each other and arguing all the time. And I think it's just really important that 
we as future teachers be sensitive of that. Not everybody is fortunate enough to have the home life that you might have had growing up, you know? And um, that's, that's something that we've learned in social foundations that I've really taken to heart because I know that I grew up very privileged, you know, like I'm a white, cisgender, heterosexual female. I mean, that's almost about as privileged as you can get. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I've been through some rough stuff, but like still there's people who have been through a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, um, I think it's very important to be sensitive of that yeah definitely um moving on to i mean kind of bouncing off what you said uh another big point that we talk about is respecting other people's identities in the classroom as well which i find really important um i don't know especially as somebody uh i i am like I, i am a biracial uh bisexual woman um and a lot of times like my identities i've had struggles with a lot of the times. I mean, I grew up, um, half my family is Filipino, um, and half my family's white. Um, so I definitely do have a lot of privileges that, you know, people that are, that people that don't have any, um, uh, that aren't white, um, have. I mean, but I still did deal with a lot of that sort of racial stuff growing up. Not a ton, but I do remember very specific moments, like I, just growing up, that I didn't feel as, I, stuff like my childhood friends calling my mother a foreigner, and like, stuff like uh, people saying um, that the stereotypes about Asians were good because, you know, it, it meant that I was smart and stuff, and growing up like that like I didn't realize how messed up it was but I just going through that it has made me so much more so much more um try I I just try to uh be empathetic to other people and their situations Mm -hmm. you know um because it's hard yeah I mean obviously I can't relate but I mean I know when I was getting into um social justice stuff back in middle school when I was really first starting to learn about what racism is and I was learning about the LGBTQ plus community. I was just seeing all this stuff that happened every day around me and it was like, wow, this is racism or this is homophobia or transphobia or xenophobia. And it was just like, my eyes were open to this whole world around me that I was so immune to because it wasn't happening to me. And I was seeing um, some of my gay friends were being persecuted against, even in their own homes. Like they couldn't be out to their parents because they wouldn't have been okay with it. And I, like I had a trans friend that could not be out to his parents or his family because they were incredibly religious and they were not okay with transgender people at all. And it was really just like, wow, I wish the world wasn't like this, you know? Like, that's really wishful thinking, but, you know? And I think through becoming a teacher, 
we can create a, I don't necessarily want to say a safe space, I guess, because, I mean, that term has a lot of negative baggage on it now from <laughs> hateful people, I think. But essentially, I want to, I want my classroom to be a place where people can be themselves without fear of judgment, where, you know, where we can be sensitive to each other's varying identities, and we can celebrate those differences. Be and I think it's important that we recognize these differences. All these people who say, like, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color, you're really just ignoring the problems if you're not seeing color. We just, you know, it's important to recognize, yes, people do have different skin colors than me, but, or people are attracted to different genders than me, or a different number of genders than me, or people are a different gender than me, you know? I think it's just, it's so important that we recognize those differences so that we can celebrate them. And that's what I want to do in my classroom. Yeah, there you go. Sorry, that was very long. No, <laughs> it's all right. I totally agree. I mean, it's growing up in the music department at my school, I think was like, it was probably the most, the place that I felt the most comfortable to be myself which I'm extremely grateful for, and that's always what I want to give my student, students when I am a teacher and when I have my own classroom. Um, I don't know if I would be as comfortable in myself as I am right now if it weren't for the kindness of my teachers and the understanding of them. I mean, I, I, mean, I just remember going to, I remember going to my teachers for problems in my life, my music teachers, and um, they helped me through a lot of things, and I really want to. I really want to help other people, my students, through those things too, if they need it. Um, yeah, I feel the exact same way. I mean, I never really had any like identity crises or anything, but like, I definitely did feel safe coming to my music teachers if I was having like a mental health issue or something. So. Mm-hmm. I want to be, I, w- I want to be that outlet for my students to come to. Yeah, definitely. Especially I feel like music is such an, like, music is just an interesting thing to teach because it's so connected to oneself and it's so connected to other people and it's very emotional. So I feel like this sort of stuff comes up a lot more frequently through music than through anything else. It's um, it's a, just a way to express yourself. I mean, as cheesy as that may sound, it is it is like a way to, it is a self-expression tool, and um, I think a lot of healing can be done through music, so. I completely agree 100%, and I think since we are musicians here, I think that's why I feel like I've grown so close to the people here already, even though we've only been here, what, a month and a half, maybe? I already have, like, best friends here I mean Jenny is one of them you know (laughs) like I have best friends here I can say with certainty and I think that's because we're making music together yeah definitely I mean it's just it's just such a music is just such a powerful tool I think when it comes to teaching and just empathy in in general it's just 
it's just a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. And I really, that's one of the reasons I love the music education program here at Gettysburg, because they really put the emphasis on that. Like all of our teachers, all of our classmates, we all are here because we share that passion. We want to make music with people. We want to celebrate diversities through music. We want to make a peaceful world through music. Yeah. And I love that about this place because we're all just here with that common passion. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that about sums it up, honestly. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I hope that you enjoyed listening to this portion of the little show we got here. Yeah, hashtag this is music ed, man. This, yes. is, this is what it's all about. <laughs> this is what it's all about. Okay, have a great all right. day. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. And Thank we'll you. talk to you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Go Forth, a music education talk show. This was Summer. And this is Owen. We hope to see you next week. And until then, go Go forth forth and and change change the the world. This talk show has been brought to you by our interviewer, Logan Shippey, our guest star, Dr. Rollo Dilworth, Owen McGowan, Eric Gabriel, Eric Messinger, and Jenny Jordan. The audio has been edited by Sam Burr, Summer Burton, and Owen McGowan. Our quality controllers are Amanda Harold and Zane Kazmarski. A big thanks goes out to our coordinators, Dr. Talbot and Dr. Russell McCutcheon.